Good morning, everybody. Are you having a good time so far? I hope that you are, because you sure sounded like you were. Singing like you believe that the Lord is in this place today. Yeah, God is moving, and that is a very, very good thing. There has been so much already to give thanks for um, this morning. Um, at the early service, you know, we um, prayed for and blessed our students as they went off to Florida um, for a good time together to grow in their bonds of love for each other and with the Lord and strengthen their discipleship. Um, sports camp is just, you know, was a real blessing, um, truly. I had zero to do with it. It was all <laughs> Nikki and her volunteers, but you guys did such a great job. And honestly, I mean, it was just a blessing to see how these kids kind of all came together. And, uh, and I, I said at the first service, and it was true at the second service, too. Sometimes the liturgy just hits, Right? And in the prayer of confession, it just struck me how our unconfessed sin can just get in the way of us really connecting with the Lord. So we have a lot of things to be grateful for, and I don't know who that is, but it's perfectly cool because here's the thing, that's the sign of life, right? That's what we want in a church. We want the signs of life in a church. I one time um, was in a church, and this is no kidding, outside of the sanctuary were these big signs that said, enter reverently and in silence. My first Sunday there, I was like, can we get rid of those signs, please? Because honestly, that is okay at a funeral, but it is not okay when we are the people of God who are receiving the abundance of the Spirit within our own lives. There should be life in a church, and there should be life in a worship service, and you guys were singing your heads off, and I appreciate that about you. Would you pray with me? God, we are so grateful for what you have already done and are doing and will continue to do. We thank you for your faithfulness um, to us. We thank you for your faithfulness in your word, and Lord, we um, ask that that by your spirit you would guide our hearts and minds today, that we would hear what it is that you are saying to us as your people, as your church. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we all have a story, don't we? Every person you meet, young, old, in between, we all have a story. Now, some people will tell you, well, their story isn't very interesting. Well, I'm going to disagree. I've never met anyone whose story wasn't interesting. Because I've never met anyone who's, if you listen carefully, whose story doesn't reflect the movement of God. Now, maybe in that story, that person listened to the Lord. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they had great success from a human standpoint. Maybe they didn't. But every story, no matter its content, is the story of the world constantly moving toward the fulfillment of the promises of God. Made in the image of God, every single person is part of what God is doing, even when they don't know it. 
We've been talking about people's stories all summer long. Some of you have shared your stories, and I want to thank you for the bravery that it has taken to come up and share those stories with other people. We've walked through a bunch of different stories in the Bible using the genealogy in Matthew, and as we've done that, we've encountered all kinds of different people in that genealogy. And I mean, some of them are really great people, some of them are kind of tough people, but there's one thing that's for sure. When you read the genealogy, you realize that grace just abounds when it comes to God. The genealogy itself, you might recall, is divided into three different parts. There are 14 generations in each one of these three parts, and the first one starts with the name of Abraham, and it runs down through King David. And we are meant by the name Abraham to think about the promise, the covenant that God makes with Abraham at the very beginning. And what we're really wanting to know is, is is that covenant holding, right? I mean, if you remember, God makes a covenant with Abraham in Genesis and says, I'm going to make your descendants as many as the stars in the sky, right? I'm going to bless the entire world through your descendants, except there is only one small problem. Abraham has no heirs, and he is an old man, and his wife Sarah is an old woman. How in the world is God going to do this? Well, we watch as first Abraham tries to fix it, doesn't do a great job, and then God does fix it through the birth of Isaac. And then we move on to the early days of Israel, and we walk through things like the conquest of the promised land and the walls of Jericho coming down, the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, things like that. And as we're walking through all of these things, what we're doing is we're keeping our eyes on this promise that God has made to Abraham. Because what we want to know is this. Is this God who covenants still true to his word? Does God's faithfulness hold even when the people that we're encountering are not faithful? Through all the ups and downs, can we rely on the word of this God? And the answer, astoundingly, is yes. And it's crazy because if you look at what the people who are in this list are doing, you would think that God would just push all of that aside and move on to something else, but God never does. And then we get to the second part of the genealogy, and there we encounter this, this big change because the second part of this genealogy is just a list of kings who have co- governed the nation. The list starts with, with David, and God makes a promise to David, and he says to David, there will always be someone in your bloodline on the throne of the nation. So we have another promise to watch. And just like with Abraham, there is another problem because the nation is only unified with David and his son Solomon. After Solomon, the the nation is divided into two parts. The northern part is known as Israel and the southern kingdom is known as Judah. And if you remember, and we talked about this, this division really happens because of the unfaithfulness of the people, literally idolatry. They are worshiping another god or actually multiple gods. And the question still is, is God faithful to his promises? Even when the people are not, is God still going to keep his promises when the people have just completely ignored him? And the answer again is yes. 
through all the ups and downs, God is faithful even when his people are not. And this is the point that Matthew wants us to see. And in this second section, that's why all of the names in here are, are their southern kingdom monarchs. They're all kings of the southern kingdom. Because if what we're watching is this promise of God to keep David's bloodline on the throne, what we want to know is, is God going to keep that promise? Though the nation gets smaller, God continues to be true to this because the tribe of Judah, of which David is a part, is also predicted to be the tribe from which the Messiah will come. And so in order to have a true claim to the throne, the Messiah must come through the line of David, through Judah. Today we're into the third section of the genealogy, and we are shifting again. The third section covers what would be technically known as the post-exilic period. And again, and too quickly, and I apologize, I have to call on your Old Testament memory. Now, you may not have an Old Testament memory, so you're just going to have to hang on, and I'll do the best I can to explain this to you. But you may recall that the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians, and it is basically wiped out. The southern kingdom hangs on for about another 125 years, but eventually the Babylonians come along and kind of exile all these people out of the southern kingdom. They remain in exile for about... 70 years. But if we are watching the promises of God, right, this promise to Abraham, this promise to David, the exile causes a problem, doesn't it? I mean, if there's no king and there is no nation and the descendants of Abraham have now been scattered to the four winds, how is God going to keep his promises? I am so glad you asked. Because today we're going to talk about a man named Zerubbabel. You all have children named Zerubbabel, don't you? (laughs) Actually, Zerubbabel, I think, is a great name for a Greek restaurant, even though Zerubbabel is not Greek. Where did you get that sandwich? Zerubbabel's, right? Well, anyway, Zerubbabel is called the governor of Judah. And I'm sorry for all this background, but it's important. Because Zerubbabel is in the line of David, but he is not a king. He serves under the authority of a foreign king, a guy named Darius. And Zerubbabel's contemporaries are prophets like Haggai and Zechariah and Isaiah. By the time we encounter Zerubbabel, people have begun to return to the southern kingdom, and they are sort of restarting the nation. Haggai talks about this. They are planting again. They are harvesting again. They are building homes again. And by the Spirit of God, they are called to rebuild the temple. Rebuilding the temple is the work God calls Zerubbabel to do, and it's important work. Before the exile, what you see is all this focus and attention paid to kings and armies. In this third section of the genealogy, the focus begins to shift away from the throne and onto the temple, the dwelling place of the Lord. 
Now, if you read the prophets who surround Zerubbabel, what you see is sort of this grand sense of something new going on. Zechariah says this. It says, Shout, be glad, daughter, of Z- daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you. That is incredibly important. I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, says again. You will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all flesh, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. See, God is on the move. Something new is happening. And this is what Isaiah says. Isaiah says, see, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take my delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. You see, everything that's been broken down is coming back through the power of God. And you need to keep this sense of newness in mind as I share with you from Zechariah chapter 4. Now, I am going to warn you before I read this to you that this is a vision. And visions can be a little tough, but I'm going to try to unpack this a bit because I think you will see that this newness the Lord is proclaiming through the prophets is a foreshadowing of what God is planning in and through Jesus. Listen to the word of the Lord from Zechariah chapter 4. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up like someone awakened from sleep. And he asked me, what do you see? And I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels to the lamps. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And he answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel? Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? Again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. So he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, I know this is wild. It's hard to understand. And honestly, most of the time we skip by these visions for those exact reasons. But I want to spend some time unpacking this because I think that what is here is incredibly important for us to understand what God is doing, what is coming. See, the key passage here, and you probably heard it, is here in verse 6. So he said to me, 
This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. I want you to say this with me, would you? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit. Hey, they put it up on the screen. I didn't know they were going to do that. I was wondering, boy, your memorization is really, really impressive. Now, let's look at this lampstand. It makes sense to think that this might be the lampstand, if you're like a biblical person, that is described in the book of Exodus. There is a very specific lampstand that is described in the book of Exodus, and it's very detailed. And that's actually how we know it's not the same lampstand, because the constructions are very different. And so what we're really trying to understand here is the symbolism of this lampstand here in Zechariah 4. And so this lampstand in Zechariah 4 is, you can think about it like a, a golden cylinder or a tube, right? And at the top of it is this large bowl. And on top of the large bowl are seven different lamps that are pinched seven different times, right? That's where the wicks go, is in those little pinches. And the whole thing is being fed by these olive trees that are pouring into this oil reservoir here at the top. So there are 49 lights that are burning at the top of this lamp stand. Now, like I said, on either side of this lampstand are these olive trees. And it's strange because the olive trees are simply pouring oil into this large oil reservoir at the top. And it's strange until you think about verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. You see, there is no human power involved in the lighting of this lamp. Now, what is the lamp? One commentator said the lamp is the nation of Israel, God's covenant people. That could be. All this newness surrounding the people could be, you know, could be symbolized by, by all of this. And these, these seven lamps that are being fed by the Spirit, if this is the nation of Israel, then these lights are, are bringing light into the darkness of the whole world. That is what this new Israel that is being formed is being called to do. Now, now notice that, that there is actually a new Israel being formed in reality on the outside of this vision, and that the vision is just speaking to the purpose of what this new Israel is going to be all about. And this new Israel is to, is to be formed to be a light to the world. Now, think about the promise from Abraham. This promise is continuing to move forward, but now in a very different way. Because now it is being pulled into being the light to all the world. And notice once again that the power to bring light to the world doesn't lie with us. The source of the power is symbolized by these olive trees that are pouring into the lamp. Now, it might just be me, but I think that the parallels to the New Testament are unmistakable. I mean, think about how John opens his gospel about Jesus. He talks about Jesus being a life which brings light to all mankind. He says that the light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it. Think about 
Jesus' own words, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life. Think about Jesus' words echoing Zechariah chapter 4. Jesus' admonition that I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Or even Paul's words to the church where he says to them, walk by the Spirit. All of these things come together here. Now look at the two olive trees. These trees are described by the angel as the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. There are only two anointed offices the office of king and the office of priest, which means that the oil being poured into this lamp from the top, what we're seeing is this, the offices of king and priest merging together. They are coming together, and when we see that, we almost immediately think of who? Jesus, because he's the only one in whom the offices of king and high priest merge. And so we could see Jesus himself as the lampstand being poured into. But it might be too limiting to say that Jesus is the lampstand, and here's why. It is true that Jesus is both high priest and king, but priest and king here are the source of all the new. They are the source of the power. And so instead of this lampstand being Jesus Jesus is the olive trees that are pouring into the lampstand, into this new covenant people that are bringing light to all the world. Now, if you think about the sign of the Holy Spirit coming on the people in Pentecost in Acts, what was the sign? Flames. Have you ever wondered why? Is the vision of the lampstand actually a vision of the people who have claimed Jesus being poured into by the Spirit? Is this what it means when it says that we, the covenant people of God, are called to be light on a hill? When the Bible talks about us being children of light because of Jesus, is this what it's talking about? Are we called to bring light into the darkness? Are we called to bring the oil of holiness into the middle of the hopelessness and broken places in life? And what does this all have to do with Zerubbabel? Another good question. <laughs> I mean, here is a man who is in given an incredibly important task, rebuilding the temple and reestablishing temple worship. He is a man who is mentioned in Ezra. He is mentioned in Nehemiah. He is mentioned in Haggai. In fact, the whole entire book of Haggai is about Zerubbabel. He is mentioned in Zechariah. And yet he doesn't have one significant speech. In fact, if he speaks at all, I couldn't find it. Which brings us right back to the words in Zechariah 4. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. You see the point here? Isn't Zerubbabel? It never has been. It has always been the power of God. You see, this is God's might, God's plan, God's faithful promise-keeping, the promise of Abraham, the promise to David. These are the things that matter. Yes, Zerubbabel is given a job to do, and God empowers him to do it because 
He is rebuilding the temple. But the big shift here in section 3 of the genealogy is that God, by the Spirit, is doing something new. God is roused from him, His holy dwelling and is now dwelling among the people again. And He is keeping His promises. His promises to David. His promises to Abraham. Zerubbabel is simply the one who is blessed to be in a position to carry out the desires of the Lord. Are we not ultimately in the same position as Zerubbabel? According to the New Testament, we who claim Jesus, we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We are poured into like the lampstand. We, just like Zerubbabel, are empowered by the Holy Spirit to rebuild God's kingdom. What is broken down is rebuilt by those that God sends out to do it. This is the kingdom that Jesus preached about. This is the kingdom that Jesus died to open the way to. Our sin was keeping us from being able to participate in this, but because of the cross, now we can. And we don't do it by might or by power. We do it by God's Spirit being poured into us. Now, just like Zerubbabel, do we have specific work to do? I think we do. We as Evergreen Church have defined that as being a missionary of Christ in our local communities so that our neighborhoods reflect the kingdom of heaven. So everybody's mission field is different, but the work is still the same. But honestly, I got to tell you that the specific work that God has called you to is less important in this passage than the source by which you do it. It is not about your might. It is not about your power. Is it about the Spirit of God being poured into you by the one who is both king and high priest? See, nothing happens without this. Nothing. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And see, the thing is, is that, and this kind of blows my mind, but being poured into is not a choice that we are making. It's not... Well, if I stand on one foot on a Tuesday with a full moon and just hold my mouth right, then God will pour himself into me. That's not the way this works. God has chosen you. He has claimed you and is pouring into you. It's amazing that the God of the universe thinks that much of us. To do that. And the only question that really remains is how do we burn brightly? Would you pray with me?